0: Well, good morning, Genesis Church. Thank you so much for joining us online today. My name is Steve and I'm one of the pastors here at Genesis. And you know, I was walking back through the Gen Kids hallway this week and I I found this. Uh, I don't know if you can see this or not, but this is a toy Noah's Ark. And and this brought back so many memories for me. Uh, My kids are teenagers now, but when they were toddlers, uh, we had the Fisher Price Noah's Ark and we loved it. And we would play with it all the time. they had the animals on the inside, just like this one does. And my kids would spend hours putting the animals in little compartments and things. But we used it a lot of times to teach animal sounds. So we'd pull one of the cows out and we'd say, what does the cow say? And our girls would say, what would they say? They'd say "Move," right? And then we'd pull the, the sheep out and we'd say, what does the sheep say? And they would say, bah, you know, and we'd give them lots of kudos when they got that right. And then we'd pull the giraffe out. And we'd say, what, what does the giraffe say? Right, nobody knows, right? And so uh, that was always a fun little game that we played, but uh, it brought back so many memories when I went back through this. And, and one of the things that I thought about this week as I prepared for this message is this, why do we make Noah's Ark a, t- a kid's story all the time? Now, I was reading through the message this week and I thought about the fact that kids love this like boat full of animals and so... We, uh, we read this story and we buy toys to play with and we, we get children's books. We read children's books about Noah's Ark. And maybe you've at one point painted a scene on your nursery wall of Noah's Ark. But the story of Noah is not a kid's story at all. And even if you're not a Christian, if you didn't grow up in church, maybe you never you know, saw the flannel graph presentation or sang any of the songs, you know this story that God looks down at the earth and he sees that the earth is filled with wickedness and he calls Noah to build an ark and and he sends rain and a flood on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights and it destroys everything. Think about this, almost everyone dies and it's ugly. Nobody's painting that on their nursery walls, right? think about that. If you're not Noah or part of his family, this is not a good experience for you. In fact, if I can just be brutally honest with you right now, it's likely that for every animal safely stowed inside the ark, there were hundreds or even thousands that didn't survive. And, and while Noah and his family were safely bundled inside that, that ark that protected them and kept them safe, well, there were probably bodies floating on the water outside and it was a horrible scene. I mean, maybe you have saw the movie Titanic, uh, not to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, it is 20 years old now, but, but two things. One is... It, it's really long. But the second thing is it, it's really sad. I mean, I mean the scenes at the end are, there, there's a lot of death and a lot of people that don't survive and it's tragic and sad. Uh, Noah's Ark makes the Titanic look, well, like child's play. Now, but here's what we do know about Noah's story. As awful as it was, if it wasn't for his obedience to God, like the whole world would have been destroyed. You know, Noah's listening, his obedience, his persistence, preserved all of humanity. The entire human race owes, it to know, owes its existence to Noah's obedience. I mean, generations, hundreds of generations later, that's why we're still here. You know, we're in week two of our series called Peacemakers. And that, that phrase is taken from a statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter five. We, we covered this last week, but Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. In what was likely Jesus' best-known sermon, he he declared that his followers would be blessed or would be happy or would be uh, enriched when they become peacemakers, when they make peace, and because of that, that they would be called God's children. But what does it look like to be a peacemaker in a world filled with conflict and confrontation? Well, last week, we talked about the importance uh, of being a peacemaker and the difference between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper, If you remember that, peacekeepers avoid conflict in order to try to keep everyone happy, but peacemakers meet conflict head on for the purpose of bringing peace and order into a situation. While peacekeepers tend to run from trouble, peacemakers run to trouble, but not to make more trouble, but to bring love and grace and peace into chaotic situations and to bring order and reconciliation. And as Christians, we are called to be peacemakers. Now, over the next few weeks, we wanna learn how to be peacemakers by looking at the lives of some people from scripture who are confronted with making peace in the midst of fear and chaos and doubt. And I think the world that Noah lived in was a perfect example of this. I mean, look how this story starts out in Genesis chapter six, it says this. It says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Or I'm fascinated by how this is paraphrased in the message version of the Bible. It says this, God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning to night. You know, God looks down on his creation after a while, you know, long after he created and he's done. Like we're We're a wreck. He he looks down and sees the sin that's rampant in the world that specifically the Bible mentions that people are marrying people. He specifically told them not to marry. He sees all types of disobedience and wars and people killing one another. And I don't know what finally set God over the edge. Maybe he looked down and saw, you know, one of the presidential debates at the time or whatever it was, but he decided that we were beyond repair. And God puts in motion the machinery to chuck it all to just kill everything and everyone and start all over. And we brought it on, we, we betrayed him. Genesis six says, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth, the human race I have created and with them, the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. And you should note that that phrase there, deeply troubled, that phrase that's translated deeply troubled in our scripture is not a phrase of anger, but it's one of grief. It's a a sad phrase. It it means that God looked down on the earth and saw the sorry state of the world and he felt bad. He, He saw his children whom he deeply loved were walking away from the ways they were taught. Now, if you're a parent and you're watching this, you already get this, you understand this. I mean, when my wife and I decided to have kids, it wasn't because we needed to have kids right? We didn't need helpers around the house. We didn't do it because we were lonely. I mean, we had a a great relationship. We had good community with one another. In fact, we knew that there was a chance that having kids would disrupt our relationship, would bring chaos into the relationship and change the dynamic we had. And uh, in some ways that was a little bit scary. But we always thought that the good outweighed the bad because we wanted someone to share our experience with, someone to go through life with. And you know, when your kids are little, you think they'll never do anything wrong. I mean, all these other parents, they just don't get it. But wait until the world gets a taste of my parenting brilliance and gets to see my child who grows up with no flaws and never does anything wrong, right? But then when your child messes up, it gives you grief, doesn't it? It makes you sad. In fact, some of you are watching today and you're grieving because your child has been lost. Maybe they've been lost to drugs. Maybe you've got a child who's made really bad decisions in their life when it comes to you know, their sex life or when it comes to their financial life, their life's a financial ruin. Um, and some of you have kids who completely cut you off. You're no longer part of their life from a decision that you had no say in or no part in making. And when you held them in your arms as little babies, like you couldn't ever imagine That there would be this much pain and hurt in your life because of your kids. In fact, you know what? As I say that, I just want to take a moment right here and pray. And I want to pray for you. If you're in that situation, maybe you've got a child who the relationship is lost or it's strained. uh, Let me just take a moment and pray for you. Heavenly Father, I know, we know, that it was your intention for parents to love their children and children to love their parents and to honor and respect their parents. Lord, I know that there's pain and there's hurt and there's anger that sometimes comes in those relationships, but we know that that doesn't come from you. And so I just wanna take a moment here right now and lift up my friends who have strife in their parent and child relationships. Maybe that relationship is broken. Maybe that relationship is damaged and we feel like it can't be repaired, but God, you are a God of grace and a God of mercy. And I believe you can repair that. Would you be who you promised to be and be our great comforter if we're in those situations? We just leave these situations in your hand. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So God looks down at the world he created and he feels grief. He feels grief for his children and he decides it's time to end it. He's ready to, to start all over with a clean slate. Enter Noah. Noah steps into this time of conflict and something about him catches God's eye. Genesis 6, 8 says this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But again, I really love how the message paraphrase puts this. It says this, it says, but Noah was different. God liked what he saw in Noah. So God looks at Noah, just like Stanley Hudson looks at Pretzel day. You know, what causes this? What what is it that causes God to look at people and see the difference in them from time to time? We see this happen in scripture. Uh, Quite a few times, if you read through the entire Bible, what you'll see is there are people from time to time that God looks at and sees that they're different, or it says He finds favor, and they find favor in God's eyes. And so later in Scripture, you'll you'll see God do this with Caleb. Uh, God tells the nation of Israel, "None of you will inherit the promised land because of your disobedience," but but Caleb. Is different. Caleb has a different spirit about him and Caleb and his family will get to go live in the land that I've promised you. We see it in David when David is first anointed as king. The prophet Samuel comes to David's house and he wants to choose one of David's older brothers to be the king because they're taller and handsomer and they're better warriors. And and God says, no, no, no. I don't look at what's on the outside. I see what's on the inside of someone and David is different. And then in the New Testament, we see it with Mary, the mother of Jesus. You may know this story when an angel appears to her and says that you'll be giving birth to the Son of God. The angel tells Mary that she had found great favor in God's eyes. I want that to be said of me. Don't you? I mean, wouldn't you love for God to look at you and you to find great favor in God's eyes? Don't you wonder what it is about these people, these these ordinary people that God calls to do extraordinary things? Well, I think by looking at Noah's story, we can learn a bit, little bit about his, from his life about who God uses to be peacemakers. In fact, there are three things I see as I'm looking through this story over the past week. And the first one is this, peacemakers walk with God. You know, Genesis 6, 9 says this of Noah. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now, the first part of this phrase, Noah was a righteous man, just means he was a good guy. Noah's a pretty good dude. I mean, if you compare him to everybody else, he's pretty good. And sometimes that's how we make our comparison. We, We look at our neighbor, our friend, our family member, and we say, well, I'm better than that person. So I must be a pretty good guy. But the second part of this is so much more important, I think it says that he walked faithfully with God. Now, God is all powerful, all seeing, all knowing. He knows your every thought before it ever becomes a word that comes out of your mouth. And so I don't wanna make more of this than I should. But when you walk with someone, you can really get to know them, right? You know, and Noah walking faithfully with God meant that God knew that he could trust Noah to carry out his plan. So if Noah's gonna walk faithfully with God every day, God says, that's a man who I can trust. He's gonna do what I tell him to do. And for Noah, walking with God meant that he really got to know God's character. So it built him in him a trust that you just really can't get apart from spending time with someone. Look, a lot of us know a lot about God, right? We, we form Bible studies. We do word studies in our Bible. We Uh, Join small groups, we listen to podcasts, we watch videos. We wanna know as much as we can about God. We we wanna study him and learn him and get to know what the words mean. And and there's nothing wrong with getting to know anything about God. But until we make it our practice to walk with him faithfully, well, we'll never really know God. And this is how Jesus lived his life. And this is how he, he taught his disciples. They walked places together. They spent time together. When Jesus had a wedding in Cana, he took his disciples with him. They walked with him all the way from, you know, the Southern part of Israel uh, to this wedding. When he went to a party with Matthew and all of his tax collector and center friends to, to their dismay, the disciples went with him. When he'd go to teach in the temple, the disciples would go with him. They walked with him places. They got to know him. They got to know his character. They got to know what he was really like. And then near the end of his life, Jesus gave them this command. He said, if you remain in me and I in you, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Look, maybe you'd say that you're a Christian, but my question is, are are you really walking with God? Are you remaining in Christ as we're called to do? Peacemakers do. Peacemakers walk with God. The second thing we can learn from Noah is this, peacemakers follow God's commands. You know, when I was a kid, we played this game called Simon Says. You've probably played this too. Most of us have. And it's a game that is real easy to play. We probably played it a lot in school because you didn't need a board. You didn't need any equipment. You didn't need anything except a teacher who had a few spare minutes to kill before the bell rang. And the way the game works is, you know it, it's like this. The leader, Simon, will say, Simon Says, touch your ear. And you have to touch your ear. You know, Simon says, touch your forehead. Simon says, touch your nose, touch your chin. And if you touch your chin, you're out, right? Why? Because Simon didn't say. Or, or uh, I used to have a teacher that would do this. Simon says, touch your nose. Simon says, touch your cheek. And oh, you got me. It's not my cheek, that's my chin. And so if you're gonna win at Simon Says, there's two things you have to do. One, you have to be able to discern, right? The voice of Simon from what doesn't come from Simon. And two, you have to follow the command exactly. You know, for Noah, his life was like a big game of Simon says, except it wasn't Simon that he was listening to and following. It was God. Look at what Genesis 6.22 says. It says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. In fact, we see this even as he's building the ark. God told him what kind of wood to use to build the ark. God told him how to make the rooms. God told him how to coat the ark and how long to make it and how wide to make it and how high to make it and how to build the roof and how many decks to have. And you gotta think at some point during this whole process, Noah has to stop and think and go, you know what? I think it might be better this way. But he never did that. Scripture tells us Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And then God said, I'm gonna make it rain. What? What is rain? (laughs) See, all the evidence in scripture points to the idea that it's possible it had never rained before this time. Genesis 2 tells us that God had not sent rain on the earth, but instead streams bubbled up from underground to water the surface of the earth. And Hebrews 11 reminds us that by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, right? That indicates that nobody had ever seen rain before. Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with the faith. And that reminds me, by the way, oh yeah, in case you have ever thought that maybe this wasn't a true story, that it was just something that was made up later, or it was a Uh, an allegory for God cleansing the entire earth. I, I want you to know that there are several New Testament writers that refer to Noah as well. And Jesus himself affirmed Noah's existence. So you can't believe Jesus is who he says he is without taking this story at face value. And so Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. But there's a third thing that peacemakers do that I think we can take from Noah's story. If you look at 2nd Peter 2, it says the apostle Peter called Noah a preacher of righteousness. And so you have to believe that people uh, in the day, especially those who were caught in sin, were looking at Noah thinking that guy's a bit much, right? Does he really have to be so loud? that surely the God of love was okay, for instance, with people marrying whoever they wanted to marry. And God couldn't have meant what he'd said because that was so out of step with the time and the culture. And, but we see here the third thing that peacemakers do, that peacemakers preach righteousness. And not standing on the street corner with our megaphones, warning people that the end is nigh. Not, that's not what I'm talking about. But we preach righteousness in a way that our lives, our words, our actions preach righteousness even when it doesn't make sense to the world around us. Remember Noah's world was full of wickedness and rebellion and deceit and sin. And there were voices coming from all corners, declaring that things were okay, that God had already declared not okay. And Noah probably looked a little old fashioned or a lot old fashioned in continuing to follow God in a culture that was increasingly hostile to that. I mean, really how different could it have been from where we are today? Still, Noah followed God's commands. Even to the point that he does all this stuff, he gathers up his family, he herds all the animals, he goes into the ark, and do you know what happens next? Nothing. No rain, no floods, for seven days. Seven days, nothing happened. Now, if you think it's hard to explain why you're building a boat for a flood when there is no flood, And then maybe you try to explain to your neighbor what rain is, if they've never seen rain. That's probably pretty difficult to do. Now, try to explain why you and your family and every animal species on earth are living in a boat in your driveway when there's a perfectly good house sitting right next to it, right? For seven days, nothing happened. But there's something else interesting in this story, something that I've often glossed over in reading it. And it's this, if we're not careful, we can make the ark uh, kind of a metaphor for our church or even a metaphor for our own family. We can, uh, we can mistakenly take away from this story, from Noah's story, that my job is to, to preach the truth and then protect my family from all of the outside influences that, that may be coming. We can, we can preach the truth and now I wanna protect my church from God's wrath and all the people who are gonna be caught up in that. Or we can think of the church as our ark and that I wanna get my family on board, but I wanna protect them from those people. You know those people, right? You know those radical libs who wanna turn us into a communist country? Or the, those neo-Nazi conservatives who are so out of touch with reality? Or those rainbow flag waivers or those Confederate flag waivers or those immigrants who can't come here and they can't even speak our language or those gun owners or those abortion doctors or those protesters or name every group on any side of any issue that you don't agree with. Now, let me be clear with you. I'm not talking about people who have hurt you personally. And I'm not talking about Christians that refuse to acknowledge their own sin, but I'm talking about other people in God's family or out of God's family, that because of their stance on an issue or because of their political affiliation, because of the name that they're gonna write on a ballot, you couldn't stand to be on a boat with. If you have a face in mind right now, I want you to see something. Noah brings his family on the boat. He gets the animals on board and he waits and watch what happens. Genesis 7:16 says this, the animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God commanded Noah, And then the Lord shut him in. See, my tendency and and maybe yours is to shut that door myself. Like I wanna decide who gets in and who stays out. But the story of Noah reminds us that that's not our role. That's not our place. That's not what it means to be a peacemaker. Instead, we're, we're supposed to walk with God. We're supposed to follow his commands to be preachers of righteousness and let God handle the door. Right? We leave the door open to people, just like Princess Anna of Arendelle said, love is an open door. You know, the church of Jesus Christ should be the most beautiful, most diverse place on earth. I mean, shouldn't it look just like heaven? Revelation 7 says that heaven will be filled with a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And Jesus' last prayer for us, for his disciples before he left the earth, his last prayer for us is that we would be united and not divided. See, it, if you don't like people because they're different from you, or you're probably not gonna like heaven very much. And one of the things that the Lord has been impressing in my life is not just the need to be accepting of people who are different from me, but to be pursuing people who are different from me. Over the last few months, the Lord has been telling me I need to pursue friendships with people who don't look like me, who don't think like me, who don't vote like me, and who don't talk like me. Because some of my opinions are wrong. And so are yours. You're wrong about things. I know you are because I see your Facebook posts. You're wrong about things. I, I, I see your Facebook posts if I haven't muted you already. By the way, just a freebie for you out there. When you see a political Facebook post you don't like, there's three dots in the upper right-hand corner. You can snooze that person for 30 days. And if you do that today, it'll go right past the election. You will not have to worry about them. You know, we are in the middle of a global pandemic, a severe economic crisis, and we are working through a once in a generation reckoning on racial relations and reconciliation. And right now, it seems like the only thing that can bring us together is hate for the people that we disagree with. But not you, not us church. The church isn't supposed to hate. The church is supposed to be a place of love because you're not always right. I'm not always right. You're wrong about things. And some of those things, we won't ever know this side of heaven that we're wrong about them. But we, if we can only be friends with people who agree with us on social issues and on political things, man, we are in for an unpleasant surprise when we get to heaven. See, we serve a God who is holy. He is set apart and he truly is the only one that can bring peace into this chaos of a warring world. But do you know what? His plan A for doing that is us, the church. It's us, his His followers. It's you and me being peacemakers and walking with him and obeying his commands and sharing his story with people and loving people and not closing the door on him. That's his plan A for bringing peace to the world. And there is no plan B. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we wanna be peacemakers as a church, as a body, as Christians. And God, I just admit, I confess right now that that starts with me, that I wanna be a peacemaker. Lord, would you help me be intentional at pursuing people who are different than I am? Would you help me be intentional in, in loving people even when my, the inclination of my heart is evil? God, would you be a calming presence in our country and in our world right now when we so desperately need it? We trust in you, we believe you, we know that you can make a way when there is no way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.